If we do not act now, we would be derelict in our duty. It is tragic that the president's reckless actions make impeachment necessary. He gave us no choice. Welcome to a historic week and historic episode of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former and current federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal issues of the day. On Wednesday, December 12, 2019, at 8.27 p.m., President Donald John Trump became the third U.S. president to be impeached accused by the House of Representatives of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. About 10 short weeks after the release of a whistleblower complaint detailing Trump's holdup of Ukraine President Zelensky to muscle him into announcing an investigation of former Vice President Biden, the House returned the two articles along nearly straight party lines. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. I'm joined today by two of the most prominent commentators in the country and a member of the House of Representatives that just impeached the president. First, joining us from Birmingham, Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, longtime assistant United States attorney for that district. Distinguished Professor of the Practice of Law at the University of Alabama, Culver House School of Law, and not least, Charter Talking Fed. Welcome back, Joyce. Nice to be with you, Harry. Next, Maya Wiley, former Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York and counsel to New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. Maya is the current Senior Vice President for Social Justice at the New School and an MSNBC legal analyst who was ubiquitous in the network's coverage this past week. Maya, thanks very much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. And finally, we are again honored to have Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon, who represents Pennsylvania's 5th Congressional District. She is vice chair of the House Judiciary Committee and a member of the House Committee on Rules, Two committees at the center of the action this past week. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Feds. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So what a lineup. Thank you all so much. And let's get right to it. You know, quite a bit has happened since Wednesday at 827, but let's just take a few minutes anyway to talk about the floor debate that culminated in the impeachment vote. It was a weird sort of spectacle with Nadler and Collins on either side playing kinds of head coaches and designating different members for a minute here and a minute there. Did anybody or any point break through the partisan babble or was it just all one long drone? Was there anything even noteworthy about it other than the subject matter? Certainly, it felt like there was a very visible difference in what was being presented by those who spoke in favor of the articles of impeachment, which did include one former Republican, now independent, um, Justin Amash. I mean, these were constitutional arguments that we were making that that people were putting forth there and, and talking about not the president, the man, talking about his actions and the threat those actions pose to our constitution. The other side was talking a lot about process and, you know, kind of pointing fingers in a variety of directions. So I think it was substance versus process. And then uh, several people noted that 
just the optics of who was speaking on behalf of impeachment looked a lot more like America as a whole. There was a diversity in the the people who were speaking. Right. You mean so a lot of angry white men on the Republican side, you could say. Joyce, Maya, did did any did anything stick out to you? And I, again, was it all did it all just wash over everybody as one sort of partisan scrum? Or what was there anything new, clean, anything that broke through as you sat there observing it? So, you know, I'll say, Harry, that that I watched it and I felt like I was watching it with two different sets of eyes. On the one hand, it was a very in-depth constitutional conversation about our form of government. And there were many members, uh, frankly, mostly on the Democratic side, who I thought made points that really illuminated the form of government that we have. But on the other hand, what I think was at the same time so odd was that so much of the country was disconnected from what was going on. You know, we all watched it. The congresswoman participated in it and we were hyper-focused on it. But to much of the country, because of the partisan squabbling and the back and forth, they had tuned it out. And I found people were remarkably disconnected from what was going on. Your experience also, Maya, I mean, in some ways, you know, the testimony seemed to have points of drama, but this really did seem to be a rehash. Although one interesting, to, to Joyce's point, the, the the Republicans seemed to fold in the same kind of apocalyptic statements about the Constitution, but from from their side, as if in some way the actual impeachment itself was a you know demolition of our constitutional order like other of their arguments hard to follow but uh, but they were trotting out different rhetorical you know excesses including comparing trump to you know jesus and the and the pont and the trial of pontius yeah, I, I i thought in, in some ways what stood out to me uh, was the fact that you had a level of hyperbole and some really disturbing comparisons and analogies. I think it was Pre Ferraro who tweeted that, you know, if he ran uh, for public office, he would run for, on a platform of no analogies. And I, I think that was it, it, it was hyperbolic, um, you know, the Pontius Pilate example, which was also, by the way, just factually inaccurate because, of course, um, President Trump was afforded the same process opportunities as Nixon and Clinton, and including the ability to send his counsel to cross-examine witnesses, um, to be present at all hearings, including in executive sessions. In other words, sessions the public couldn't be in. So that, in that sense, it was um, disturbing. I think Ms. Lesko also at one point started with what was a really devastatingly important um, story about her own life experience as a woman who had been abused by her husband. And then it suddenly and jarringly switched to a conversation about um, the lack of process in impeachment, which, which just was, um, I thought, really unfortunate because of the seriousness of that issue, but also the lack of a relationship the questions that were really before Congress um, in that moment and, and all day. What I will say that really struck me, honestly, was in this conversation about the Constitution, is that 
that when Republicans said you now can re- you will now be able to impeach any president for anything, you know, it was a disturbing argument because I think it was deeply untrue. Um, I don't think that really adequately reflects the arguments or the evidence uh, that Democrats were putting out. And I think the only way you could have um, handled that in a way that I think would be credible is to say, and, and many did argue the evidence is insufficient. I don't believe it is, but certainly arguing that it's insufficient is very different from saying now any president can be impeached because abuse of power itself is so broad it has no meaning. Yeah, I mean, they did fold in, again, these bare assertions that struck me as ludicrous. I mean, the three of us have all been assistant U.S. attorneys, and uh, the congresswoman was a prominent attorney in private practice. But, you know, our, by, in my experience, when somebody on the other side is starting to pound the table and talk about, you know, due process, uh, they always, you know, and, and august constitutional terms, and in the total absence of confronting the evidence, except for these bare assertions that it's not there, you, you feel like think the trial's going pretty well. You know, you've got it. And, and in fact, at the time when the evidence went in, it did feel very much like, well, that nobody could quibble anymore with the facts. But a little time has passed, and now there's there is quibbling about it. Even assertions that you know McConnell just said uh, yesterday. Well, there's nothing there, and it's like, what planet are you on? But if that could get a sort of purchase in the in the public sphere, Congresswoman, I wanted to return to you because you're in such a sort of special position. So there was this weird dual lane, I think, as Joyce puts it, that on the one hand, it's incredibly historic and sober and and grave and one for the books, but on the other hand, sort of all prescripted and unsurprising and and the with the result preordained. How did it sort of feel on the floor? Did it did it feel like, you know, a real sort of rush or spe- you know, a special kind of constitutional moment or did it feel kind of flat because you knew what was going on? Was there any indication among any of your Republican colleagues that, yeah, we know we're just making it up, but we have to? What was the personal subjective experience for you? I mean, I think it was a very serious day. I think people felt the weight all day. I, I know some of my colleagues had tears at different points. Wow. People were really recognizing how serious this is. I mean, because we did not expect defections from the other side, there was, you know, some obvious frustration, you know, frustration about the fact that you're talking about the sobriety of the moment, the talking about the Constitution, talking about there's this overwhelming evidence and then being told there's no evidence. It has this just whatever it takes atmosphere coming from the other side. And and you have to realize we've got this this big Democratic caucus now. Many of us came to Congress because in 2018 because we were disturbed at the trajectory of the country. And there is just this frustration with the fact that some folks seem willing to say anything just to keep power. And and the arguments that shift from moment to moment, we saw one in the last 24 hours when we were doing the debates in judiciary and in the rules committee and on the House floor. We heard a lot from the Republicans about 
oh, it's too soon to impeach. You can't impeach because you haven't heard all the testimony. You haven't heard the testimony because the president has blocked it. You have to go to court to get this testimony. So that was one of the arguments they threw up all the last you know, couple of weeks. Well, yesterday afternoon, you know, within 24 hours of this vote happening, they go into court in the case that is going to decide whether or not, again, the president's blocking of the subpoenas is all wet, which it is. Um, the lower courts already ruled that there was no legal basis for the president to block Don McGahn's testimony. Well, yesterday, the Department of Justice went into court on behalf of the White House and said, you have to throw out the Don McGahn case. The courts can't decide this. It's a dispute between Congress and the executive. Right. So, you know, we just see over and over again, up is down, left is right. And and heads I win and tails and tails you lose. Yeah. Um, well, just sticking with you for one second. I yeah. mean, is there a sense of outrage within the caucus at the sort of, you know, Orwellian willingness of, of the other side to really, you know, it, this is not a, a trivial matter no. and they really will make up anything. You know, often you try to be decorous and talk about my colleague on the other side, et cetera. But I would think it would be hard not to not to feel some some sense of outrage at well out here. I'll I'll just put it straight out there at the intellectual dishonesty of the whole, you know, other team. Well I think it's hard because a lot of us come from a background where we're used to dealing with people from different backgrounds. And I think all of us went to Congress with a hope of being able to work in a bipartisan fashion. We're doing that on some other issues, but it really is headbutting here and, and we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, what would make a difference. I actually had a colloquy with Doug Collins in the Rules Committee. Okay, what do you think is impeachable? You say you don't think this right. is, but what would be impeachable? And of course, he refused to say. So, you know, in terms of the atmosphere of the caucus or the feeling of the caucus, I think people are feeling resolute. They're feeling like mm -hmm. we are going to do our duty to the Constitution. We're going to have faith in the Constitution and that ultimately this will prevail. I, in part, that's probably because the alternative is too horrific to contemplate, but that, you know, at some point, right will prevail. And of course, it partly depends, I guess, on what we mean by right. But so... Um, Constitutional um, fidelity. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Well, so, I mean, it, it's on the, uh, the, the speaker said, it seemed like people, I think she put it, have a spring in their step because the president was held accountable. And so in one sense... The mere, you know, return of articles of impeachment is a kind of a accountability, and so that feels like, you know, a, a rare event in which Donald Trump is actually held responsible. But then, of course, we are uh, moving toward a likely acquittal. Let's say it, as seems likely, it ends in a in acquittal. Does it seem totally clear to you that it's a it was a good thing? for the country, let's stick with the country, to have impeached? Or are there ways of looking at it where, in retrospect, it might, in fact, turn out to be one more terrible problem in the age of Trump? I think the congresswoman has it just right when she says constitutional fidelity. I didn't view this as a happy or a joyful event. I wasn't looking forward to the impeachment of a president. But it seemed like something that had to happen based on his conduct. And Harry, you know, because we've both stood in front of a jury 
and made sure that they understood that this wasn't the government going after someone. This was an individual who had made decisions and that there are consequences to making decisions and there has to be accountability. That's where this president was. I think the reason, frankly, that we've seen a spring in people's steps on Capitol Hill, and I'd love to know what the congresswoman thinks about this, but you know, no matter what you do in public life, no matter what decisions you make, half of the people are going to dislike your decision and say that you were wrong and call you ugly names, and the other half are going to praise you and put you on a pedestal. I, I found that a lot as a U.S. attorney, and that makes it very easy to just do the right thing. And when you do the right thing, in this case, when you have fidelity to constitutional um, uh, principles, it's very freeing. I think that's why this moment was important. It has little to do with this president and this sorry administration. And it has a lot more to do with the fact that people in Congress stood up for the rule of law when it was hard to do. People did it who might not return to Congress because of the brave decision that they made this week. That speaks volumes to me about our system and, and how worthwhile our country is. In hindsight, this will be a proud moment in our history. And that is a good point. There's got to be at least a dozen people who really cast a, you know, po uh, possibly uh, vote against their self-interest because it was the right thing. So, Maya, do you do you see this as an unalloyed good? And, and um, you know, no way it, it in terms of history and the and the broader constitutional norms, no way it backfires. Well, I, I don't see it as a backfiring. I agree with Joyce and the congresswoman on this one. I would add some things that I really think are incredibly important about what is a very solemn uh, and important decision that the House just made. And that's that it really does matter as a precedent, particularly in the face of folks arguing over what abuse of power is, that a strong and clear message got sent that the Congress does view this as abuse of power and that it's and that it has, even if it hasn't shifted everyone's mind, it has elevated a conversation about our expectation about power and the use of the office. I also think it matters because I think it matters as a matter of record, because if Trump is not um, removed from office, it does matter that there is a clear record that the Congress did believe this was impeachable, uh, because I do fear, as many people in Congress said, that he will continue to behave in this way, which is deeply troubling for the country. And it means that the record has been made and it, and it, and he can add to the record. And, and, and the more he adds to the record, the more the electorate, the public, we, the people, are making much more informed decisions and having much more debate about what would four more years of Donald Trump mean? How do we feel about that? What do we think the exposure is to the country, to the constitutional order, to our elections? How much do we care about that? It does inform the the fundamental process of democracy in terms of electoral uh, electoral decision making, I think. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of this abuse of power idea, I, I think it's a common technique of the Republicans to take any legal phrase and say it a lot. So it seems to be nonsense or hard to follow. They tried to do this with, you know, quid pro quo or what crimes. 
But it's the most basic and easy thing in the world when you attach it to the facts and it so dovetails with what the framers were worried about. I mean, he he specifically exercised his power in a way to help himself and not the country. And he was, you know, selling out the country's both national interest and tax funds in in doing it. When people hear the facts, they understand. And to um, the Congresswoman's question exchange with Doug Collins, I thought one great uh, moment in the debate was when Representative Jayapal said, "Okay, forget about Trump. Just on these facts, is this impeachable?" And they, you know, so to 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 get them away from the obfuscation of whether it happened, because obviously it happened, and everybody ran from that. It's you know they can they can try to to send up legal phrases to confuse things, but you hear the basic facts and people understand it's an abuse more in many ways than uh, than you know shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue. Someone said you know about the spring and the step or the fact that this was freeing. It's funny that. She used that word because I actually had a conversation in the cloakroom with one of our frontliners who said, yeah, it really is freeing because I know I'm doing the right thing. You know, and as I suggested, I think there's a lot of us in that very large freshman class who, you know, we had lives, we had jobs, you know, we, we ran for Congress this time round because we felt this call to duty. But if it costs us being in Congress, we had lives, we had jobs, we will go back to them and we will still contribute in our communities. So, you know, it, it's kind of part of that public service. The other thing is this idea about it, does it count that he's been impeached regardless of what happens in the Senate? And I think it really does. I mean, I've read an awful lot of uh, constitutional debates and such now, and it is supposed to be a process. I mean, the, the House brings the charges. We're not the final convicting, but we have brought the charges and held up to the country and said, we think this is wrong. We think there's evidence that this is wrong. Now, if the Senate doesn't follow through and if the Senate just does some kind of sham, well, then, you know, that's that part of the process isn't working. But I think the public awareness that has been raised, people are going to know that that's not right. And and Trump doesn't get to say he's been exonerated if it's been a fake process in the Senate. Yeah. And back to your point, you know, it's a it's a matter of constitutional fidelity. The People's House has made a judgment about what is a constitutional deep offense. And it's really hard to quibble with. I, you know, we, we puzzle over how it will look in history, but I just can't imagine that the decision won't be deeply vindicated. All right. Well, let's go to to where things stand now, because we've got into an immediate political or tactical skirmish. McConnell, I think maybe unwisely, Pelosi, who's been magnificent, it seems to me, in these last couple of months, played him. He came out and said, well, I'm not going to try to do impartial justice. You know, he just flat out said, I'm going to swear a false oath. Uh, But it was before the articles had been sent over to him. And everyone is a, is acutely aware from Merrick Garland and before that once McConnell has the whip hand, he will exercise it viciously. But so now the Democrats are saying, well, we're not going to send it until we, ha- we have a little leverage now to talk about the process, to talk about witnesses, et cetera. Let's, let's focus on this for a while. It looks like it'll be playing out for at least several weeks is it serious? Do they do the Dems, as as you see it, have the resolve to 
stick to this for um, a while? And what will determine who succeeds in this skirmish? Any thoughts? I, I want to be the congresswoman on this one. I have lots of thoughts, particularly uh, <laughs> one in agreement about how Nancy Pelosi has handled all of this. I think, um, unfortunately, Mitch McConnell did not give her any choice. Um, it was just really an outstandingly anti-constitutional statement to make to say there is no difference between um, Donald Trump and his defense and and the and Senate Republicans. That that's I think that is astounding. It might be one of the reasons you know they think there should be witnesses at this trial, uh, and that has nothing to do with whether they support impeachment and removal, right? Because we know that's a much higher number than the polls are showing. I do think it's going to be very hard, at least I hope it will be very hard, for Mitch McConnell to continue to say there's no evidence here. Um, There's just simply no way that the president did anything wrong uh, or anything impeachable, and then refuse to have direct Fact witnesses, particularly after one of the primary complaints of House Republicans in the impeachment process was wanting to hear from more direct fact witnesses. They were disingenuous in saying there were none because there were some, including Gordon Sondland and David Holmes. But certainly, if that's their complaint, then why aren't they up in arms around obstruction? Uh, and if they think there's no problem with the obstruction, uh, but and they think that there's no problem with the Senate's uh, with the president's um, withholding of witnesses. That but but his all of his conduct is above board. Then they should be allowing some witnesses. And I'm hoping that that is really the point that gets elevated to the American public as the court of public opinion is considering what should this trial be and what the American people's expectation is. Because that is one I think that Nancy Pelosi and Democrats can rightly use. It has nothing to do with the outcome, right? This is all about what is the constitutionally expected process for a trial in the Senate. I do think that they're, I'm not sure how long you can hold that out, depending on whether they come back with something. And I think it must include documents. It really isn't just witnesses, because witnesses can say things that are frankly, not truthful. And if you don't have documents that either support or make sure they stick to accurate testimony, then that also is not a fair trial. Yeah, I mean, the dynamic really does feel different here. It's felt to me as a as a Democrat for, in some ways, for almost 20 years, but certainly for the last few that there's this, in fact, they're a minority, but exercise so ruthlessly and in some ways effectively. But this is different. As as you say, as Maya says, we're in the 70% uh, region here. That means if you do the math, that includes some of the, you know, indomitable Trump base. Some of this 42% is saying, well, let's hear from Bolton and, and Mulvaney. So that indicates, it seems to me, that there are a number of senators, half a dozen or so, who could easily come out in support of some kind of witnesses and without, you know, and nevertheless uh, say we're, you know, vote for the president in the end. If the Dems can hold to the sort of, in the war of public opinion, to the rhetorical sense of 
fair trial, witnesses, et cetera. This feels like it might be winnable for them. You know, I think that's right, Harry. For one thing, the numbers give Republicans cover on these procedural votes. You're right. It may not impact their ultimate vote on whether the president should be removed. But American people are smart. They know when they're being lied to. They don't like a cheat. And one of the themes that I think we've heard repeated over and over is that there's no reason to cover up the truth if the truth exonerates you, right? Why would this president keep the witnesses that were closest to him from testifying if anything that they were going to say was helpful to them? So I think that those arguments have piqued, frankly, people's interest in hearing from these witnesses. This is a positive development for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is that it feeds directly into this second article of impeachment, the obstruction article, you know, which as bad as the president's conduct has been, bribery is a bad thing. Conspiracy is a bad thing. Violating campaign finance law in, in a criminal way. Those are all very bad things. Obstruction of justice, though, keeping people from investigating is something that we all understand is wrong. I think at some point these process votes, if Republicans feel like they can vote in favor of hearing from witnesses or acquiring documentary evidence, which, as Maya points out, is key, this may ultimately move public opinion. And and I'm not going to be Pollyanna here and suggest that the president is going to be removed because I think it's very unlikely. But the longer this drags on, the more information that comes to light, the more people see the cover up in progress public attitudes could really continue to move here. Well, that certainly has been, you know, part of the, a big part of the issue here. I called for an impeachment inquiry when we finally saw most of the Mueller report because I was so troubled by the obstruction of justice portions, but we weren't able to bring that to the American public because of the ongoing cover-up that is sort of subsumed in some of the language of the impeachment articles and certainly the report that uh, accompanies it because it talks about this pattern of cover-up. And the whole thing does undermine, you know, the impeachment process, which is wholly within Congress's power. So, you know, there's some language about from the, the Constitutional Convention, a good magistrate will not fear impeachment, a bad one ought to be kept in fear of them. But it has to do with the fact that impeachment is a process of bringing charges to the public And then the president gets the opportunity to explain himself. I mean, the fact that we have a president who seems to think that taking the fifth, you know, on behalf of his entire administration is the way to go is deeply troubling because that's not how our government is supposed to work. It's so true. I mean, there is a broader theme here and it goes back to Mueller. We've gone this far and basically he he has never had to try to give an honest account under penalty of perjury or otherwise. He's just bobbed and weaved. He did this forever with Mueller, who, who you know, permitted him to do it, and he's you know done it again now with with what really is a sort of categorical command to everyone to in in his administration to just refuse to cooperate. Well, let's say you know you can imagine a process where. They're forced to acquiesce to a few people coming forward, let's say Mulvaney and Bolden for starters. Now, they could have sudden, convenient, you know, fuzzy memories about anything important. But if Bolton, say, you know, comes out and says, yeah, it was a quid pro quo, here's how it worked. 
does that cha- you know change the dynamic? I guess it goes back to Joyce's point. It does seem to me it's it's hard to like count to sixty seven. On the other hand, it it seems to me to deeply shame all the Republicans in the House and Senate who will be trying to say, oh, there's nothing, nothing here, here. Not only, you know, not only is there, but they've been hiding it from the American people for four months. It seems like it would have a dramatic uh, impact and put the Republicans in a very difficult position. And just and one more point along these lines, it was reported confidentially by an anonymous source uh, that McConnell said, well, you know, if they testify, there could be the way he put it, embarrassing information. Well, then I think Larry Tribe uh, made an interesting point today that if they don't allow these witnesses to come forward, do they really think they can hide what those witnesses will say forever? And if it comes out later, then doesn't that isn't that much more damaging than getting the truth at the appropriate time? But instead, you know, shutting down the truth from the American people. Yeah, I mean, it's just got to be the case that down the line, historically, this will all filter out. Of course, if Mulvaney, it, there's nothing quite like an oath and a, a deft examiner to really zero in and make them have to really answer as opposed to saying what they want. But you do have to imagine that, you know, the historical account is going to be, of course, this happened. And just as they said, and will it be, as you say, shame on the Republicans? You know, it, it seems so so uh, compelling a case, and yet they're you know at least for now continue to be intransigent. Do um, people think that in within within the caucus and and your colleagues in the Senate that there are certain important, if not dispositive, uh, skirmishes that um, really are are winnable? That you know the Romneys or Gardners or Tillis or Toomey's of the world are actually up for grabs on certain points? Uh, Certainly. I'm most familiar with Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania, and he's been quite clear that he's not breaking ranks. Well, has he? Didn't he say that it sh- that there that it shouldn't go too quickly? Or you think it's a hundred percent clear? Whatever McConnell says, is it just he's a loyal soldier, or has McConnell made clear that you know he'll break his knees or the political equivalent of it if he tries to just step a- even a little outside the line? You know, I've been very focused on trying to do my job on the House side. I <laughs> dabbled right. on the Senate side that much, but what I have seen and talked about a little bit last week is, you know, it's not completely a partisan thing here. I mean, we do have a former Republican now. Um, Justin Amash came out. He was forced out of the party because he said the emperor has no clothes. We have a number of former Republicans, including Tom Ridge, first Homeland Security Secretary for the nation, Republican governor, Vietnam War vet, former congressman, Congressman, former Congressman Charlie Dent from Pennsylvania. You know, there's a lot of former elected officials who are Republicans who are saying this is wrong. This is impeachable. It seems to be only those who are still in office and are still dependent on this president not coming out and primarying them with someone. So I'm not so sure that it's McConnell they're afraid of, but I think they are afraid of Donald Trump. But if that if that wind, if that dam breaks you know, whether it's this new Christianity Today uh, editorial or if, you know, just the right mix of facts manages to get through the White House screen. Um, I think once public 
opinion shifts enough and people aren't afraid of the damage he can do to them personally, then then that may be the turning point. You know, it is true. You feel this, that it, that it really is on this kind of knife's edge. So, for example, when the other day during the impeachment uh, vote itself, he made those incredibly, you know, vulgar and crass characteristically. So uh, uh, comments about uh, Debbie Dingell and, and, and Congressman Dingell. There was a, a sense of like, oh, God, this guy. And, it, you know, it, it feels like – and you raise a very good point with Christianity Today editorial for removal. It feels like a little bit of uh, breaks in the dam could could really go a long way. I don't know. Is that Are we just being fanciful here? Well, I think, I think there is – Possibility, and I, I, I don't want to suggest there isn't. And to, to Joyce's point about the more time that allows more information to come out um, is an important one. I, I think we have to be uh, really realistic here, though. That Christianity Today was not um, likely to be moving a huge number of evangelicals, and some of that is because of where their readership is and who their readership is in the evangelical community. And the evangelicals have never been all, you know, just uh, uh, there, there are evangelicals with different points of view. Uh, the reality is it, it, they are a white evangelicals specifically are a very strong part of the Trump base. And if they have stuck with him through amorality after amorality after amorality, it's not like this is the, the, the Christianity Today uh, opinion piece was so important uh, uh, and so clearly right in terms of the importance of seeing this as also just amoral as well as unconstitutional. Um, but this is Donald Trump got elected on a on a host of uh, morality problems. So I think it does go back to this question of um, not necessarily swaying his base based on morality, but it's really more about for independence, um, for for people who are Democrats, but who have very of a lot of concerns about what this step might mean for the country and how divisive is it and and, and having concerns about the division. And we are unfortunately much more divided than we should be as a country on some pretty basic principles, I think. Um, so I, I think I think it is possible um, with this the the bipartisan nature of this to the Congresswoman's point that this is not something where there are not Republicans who understand that there's a problem here or who can feel the heat <laughs> of their constituents if they don't acknowledge at least that there's a there's a real problem here. You know, that that, that there's hope in in that in that sense. I, I just don't think we should pretend that it's gonna fundamentally be Trump's loyal base. Well, and here's another thing that seems true to me in terms of the the overall point. I think can we can we use this as the title? Congresswoman Constitutional Fidelity. But, it, you know, we've been paying very close attention for two and a half months since the complaint happened. It's not clear others have, but now it's it really is a national defining event. So it could be that with the actual vote of the articles and the prospect of a trial, it will sort of focus the national you know mind and debate in real constitutional terms. That's probably salutary in itself, but it also could lead in unusual uh, directions. Let, let's close with, with a little look 
ahead. So let's say, you know, the all the odds play out uh, and there's an acquittal, let's say sometime, you know, toward the end of January. What next, though? Because information will continue to come out, won't it? The courts could rule that McGahn and others have to testify. Congress might still have an investigative role. Well, do, do you see it still being vigorous about this or will it feel like the air's out of the tires? No one wants any more congressional oversight. What what role will be left for the House to play should the impeachment have run its course? And uh, Joyce, I don't know if you have any thoughts on how it should be. And maybe we'd close with you, Congresswoman, about your because you you're going to be there. So, you know, Harry, I do think the House continues to play a role. We haven't talked a lot about the national security implications of the president's conduct. But I think that as as shoes continue to drop here, a lot of those shoes will involve the way that the president has mismanaged national security in order to help his own personal goals, in order to get reelected. Yesterday, we saw a little piece of that happen late in the day when the Post ran a story that unnamed sources close to the president said that he had told them that the reason he believed that Ukraine had interfered in the 2016 election was because Putin told him that. Now, it's not earth-shattering news. I think we've all assumed that just from the, the course of conduct over time. But as these pieces are confirmed, this, I think, is well within Congress's mandate to continue investigating Are the Republicans going to kvetch and say, well, you know, they've already done their one impeachment. They need to stop doing this. Maybe they will say that. But constitutional fidelity requires that the House continue to engage in oversight, particularly with an obstructive president. So I think there's that. Then there's another important piece that's in motion, which is Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA, who, along with Congress, is seeking the president's tax records. The Manhattan DA has the better side of that argument, and that at some point, presumably around June, he's going to be seeing the president's tax records. The president has fought vociferously to keep those out of law enforcement's hands. There's no telling what's in there. I assume that Cy Vance, as well as Congress, will be poised to proceed quickly once they have access to that information, and there's really no telling where that may lead us. And it's awfully close to the election at that point in time. Maybe we're going to have a June or July surprise instead of an October surprise in 2020. Really interesting. So, Congresswoman, what what do you anticipate will be the uh, degree and kind of investigative uh, oversight by the House going forward? Well, I mean, you raise the point that, of course, has been a big point of debate with the caucus uh, as we've proceeded with these articles of impeachment here. There is a real felt urgency that we had to move quickly because the president has shown us that he's inviting foreign interference in our elections and we have an election coming up. So there was this belief that we needed to proceed quickly, not that oversight was over, not that there was nothing else left to investigate. So I anticipate that oversight will continue. Um, If there's an acquittal now, I don't think anyone wants to impeach the president again. But in fact, that has happened in the past. It happened with Andrew Johnson once there was 
you know, more misconduct to uh, be impeached. So I don't think anyone would want to do that. We didn't want to do it this time, but we were forced into it. So I think, yes, I think oversight will continue. I think the court cases are going to come down showing that this theory of absolute immunity that the president has asserted in order to prevent any documents from being released, any witnesses from testifying, you know, every court that's looked at it so far has said that's nonsense. And I think they will continue to do so. I think we've had every court that's looked at the tax returns say, no, he has no basis on which to withhold them. Um, so eventually all that will work its way through the system. Okay. This has been a really, really great conversation. Th- thank you to everyone. We usually end a talking feds with a question from a listener and the uh, challenge to the participants is to answer in five words or fewer. So we're going to do that today with a question from Debbie Ryan from Twitter who asks, I've read conflicting accounts of how an impeachment affects presidential pardon power. Can you please clarify whether pardon powers are affected by impeachment? And if so, how? So, Feds, five words or fewer on Debbie Ryan's question. Uh, the pardon power is absolute. Um, the, the subtitle is, as long as the president remains in office, he can pardon in all cases except impeachment. Subtitle, 15 or mm, judges. I, okay. Amaya? Uh, what Joyce said. <laughs> um, can, still, can still pardon until removed. Okay. And I would direct mine, my five words to the president. You can't pardon yourself. Here, here. All right. Thank you very much to Joyce Mayan, especially Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast or even tell a friend about us. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can also hear special exclusive content for supporters at patreon.com slash talkingfeds. In connection with the impeachment and today's episode, there are really good segments there on Chief Justice Roberts' role in the trial with former Solicitor General Walter Dellinger and with Jill Wine-Banks, comparing the Watergate vibe and general political context with today. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, Rebecca Lopatin, and Jenny Josephson. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sam Trachtenberg and Sarah Philippoum. Thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.